John Adams was a founding father of our nation and the second president of this country, he said famously that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Adams understood that the rule of law was a vital aspect in the government of a free and prosperous people. He also realized that no code of law, however meticulously, justly, and insightfully devised, no code of law could produce the moral fiber necessary for a democracy to thrive. You can't do it with a document. No constitution could produce in people the right desires, the right attitudes, the right actions. And as law piles up on top of law in our hyper-litigious society, Adam's warning reads like a prophecy today. Well, in the manner of speaking, Adam's statement reflects the fuller truth of the Holy Spirit teaching his citizens, teaching the citizens of Christ's kingdom in Romans chapter 7. In some sense, he is channeling the message of Paul here. And we go, of course, much more deeper in our understanding. As Christ followers, we must understand what the law that God issued to Israel can do and what it is unable to do. And it is vital that we understand how law does and does not function, particularly in the battle against sin. We're all bringing that battle to this place today. We're in that fight. And in salvation history, the law played a pivotal role in how God's people fought sin, how they knew what sin was and how they lived in relationship with the Lord. But that law now is replaced by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There is a new era, the era of the Spirit in which we now come. But understanding that old era, as we stressed last week, is vital to us in our walk with God and in our struggle against sin. So in chapter 6 of the book of Romans, we learn that we have died with Christ to sin. At conversion, we are liberated from the bondage of sin. Sin's influence continues in our lives, but sin's power has been broken. We are no longer under this slave master. We are free indeed in Christ. Chapter 7, we then learned last week that we died with Christ to the law as well. The law that's given to Israel on Mount Sinai, that law that has had such a lengthy, significant influence upon God's people for so many centuries and continues to have an influence upon us today in our knowledge of Scripture. But we are free from that law. We have died to that law, we learn here in Romans 7. And you might say, yeah, well, good. I wasn't really too worried about that in the first place today. What has that got to do with me? Well, the Spirit is teaching us that we need to be concerned about this. We need to be concerned about it directly with the Mosaic Law and how we understand that law, but we also need to be related to this concept, understanding this concept, with just the idea of how we relate to law in a larger sense. We can create our own law. We can even look to the Bible in a way that's not redemptive. 
We can look at the text on the page, at the law of God revealed there, and we can go about the Christian life in the wrong way. And sometimes that's what's at the heart of the struggles that we have with sin. Not as if we get it fixed and sin is gone, but the struggle is not what it ought to be because of our lack of understanding these ideas. And we realize as we get to Romans 7, there's all kinds of different ideas. And that's the slog we're in. We're not in heaven yet. And let's remember that as we come to Romans 7. We noted last week from the first six verses of Romans 7, united by faith to Christ, that we died to the law, and we now serve God in the Spirit. We need this revelation, this word, this counsel from God, that we have died to the law. Secondly, while the law itself is pure, it serves only to trigger and expose sin, not restrict it. In a sense, what we were hearing from John Adams, he's understanding that about our country. You can't have these rules and laws and that's it. It's just the, 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 what the Word says. There has to be something internal that is transformed. There's more going on than simply the law directing us a certain way. It, it, it triggers, it exposes sin, but it doesn't restrict it. This brings Paul back then to a defense of the purity of the law given to Moses. The commands of God are right, and we know that they are right, but the commands of God have the effect of inciting more sin, not less. And Paul continues on this theme then in verses 13 through 25. First of all, under this head, although it is itself good, God's law can only expose indwelling sin. It is something of a repetitive point as he continues through this entire chapter, repeating, stressing this point. But verse 13 summarizes verses 1 through 12 as Paul then bridges the way into a fuller discussion of the law's influence beginning at verse 13 and following, verse 14 and following. So we read in chapter 7 and verse 4 under that first head that we looked at a bit earlier that we have died to the law through the death of Jesus. We read there, verse 4 of chapter 7, My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That is, through the death of, the, of Christ, this era, the influence of the law upon us in that sense is ended. We've died to the law. And we belong then to Christ. Through His death, He is our new Master. We have a relationship with Jesus through the Spirit. Then at verse 7, under that second head, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Commandment number 10. And a unique commandment in that it looks at the heart of the individual. But sin... That indwelling sin, verse 8, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Summation verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? What is that which is good? That which is good. He's talking about the law. Did this law kill me? Was it a death sentence? God says don't covet. Don't be greedy. Don't lust. Don't hate. 
And by bringing attention to that, indeed finding within my own heart a rebellion against it, it's as if the law kills me. Is that what's going on here? If the law incites sin in me, which it does, verse 8, and if sin leads to death, which it does, verse 9, then isn't the law a death trap? Verse 13, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. What is good is the law of God. But it's sin in me that's responding to that law in the wrong way. The problem is not the law of God. Then the problem is the sin. And it really gets bad here in verse 13 as he continues on. As we look at the result of this, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What's that saying? God's law defines what sin is. It defines it more clearly. It helps us see it more clearly, which then heightens the wickedness of our rebellion against it. Some years ago, our family's driving home from a wedding. We were in a spot we'd never been in in our life. And I'm tooling down the road afterward, filled with adrenaline, I suppose, having led this ceremony. We're heading to the, to the reception afterwards, and I'm flying down this road, and the light's behind me. I get pulled over by an officer who asked that question that's always I find very curious. Do you know how fast you were going? Nope. <laughs> Do you know the speed limit on this road? I have no idea, officer. I have never been here in my life till right now. I honestly have no idea how fast I was going or what the speed limit is. I, it, might, it might have been the family of six in their wedding regalia and a really beat up old van. I don't know, but he came back in and was very, came back to the car and was very merciful to me and let me go with a warning. Now imagine the next day I'm on that same stretch of road and I'm going the same speed I was going the day before, way over the limit. And the lights come and I get pulled over. And, oh boy, it's that same officer. And he looks at me with a look of shock on his face and he says, You? Again? Do you think he's going to let me off this time? And my sin is more heinous. I know what I'm doing now. The message is clear, the law is clear, and I've just broken it willfully and he's going to let me know. In a sense, that illustrates what Paul's saying here. When the law is given and we then break what we know is wrong, the wickedness is all the deeper. And what's true of every one of us here today is that wickedness is in me. That's in us. We know what God says. It's not like there's these things that we do, we don't know what God thinks and they're wrong. And then there's these things God says this is wrong and, and we don't do many of those at all. In fact, the two lists look pretty much the same in the mind of God. We break His law willfully. And so the law has this effect. It just shows us how wicked we are. But it doesn't rescue us. Do not desire anything that does not belong to you, the law says. Jealousy is sin. Do not permit envy to well up in your heart when you look at what someone else possesses, what someone else makes, what someone else is enjoying right now, don't let your heart want that, says God in His good law to us. But think about it, without those laws, without that Word of God, covetousness might seem to me to be an honest desire for fairness. 
This person over here is not as smart as me, not as capable as me. This person over here is not as honest. They're not as hard of a worker and they make more money than I do. I mean, just in fairness, just justice, this isn't really right. And I let that sort of grow in my heart and deepen. But you see, I've I've looked at it with no law. I might look at it and say, this is just about fairness. But God's Word comes in and says, that's not fairness you're worried about. That's self that you're idolizing. Don't think like that about that person. Now, does that law, it informs me, it enlightens me, does it change my heart? Hopefully it has that effect, but often all that it does is simply heighten my sin. Now I sin with knowledge. Now I break the law of God willfully. And the law shows its incapacity to actually change me. The commandment accentuates the wickedness of the rebellion in my soul. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. That's not the problem. It is of God. That's kind of the simple meaning of it. It's spiritual. It's of God. But I am of the flesh sold under sin. I belong to the realm of human existence in which sin rules. Now up to this point in chapter 7, Paul has spoken in the past tense. This is what happened to me. And we've not yet considered what experience he's talking about. But at verse 14 and through the end of of the chapter, verse 25, Paul speaks now in the first person singular. He speaks in the present tense. I do. I am. I have. I know. From here on out. And so there's two questions that we have to answer. Of whom is Paul speaking and about what experience does he speak? There are widely debated questions here that have consumed an immense amount of ink and paper through the centuries. There are books, there are articles that never end. I really don't think an individual could read it all if they gave the rest of their life to it. And I'm going to break from my traditional way in such matters, and that is to lay out the fact that there are differences and give you my opinion. We're going to go into this at greater length than is normal for us as a church. But I do this for a couple of reasons. The first is that the answers that you come to very much affect your view of sanctification, your view of the Christian life. And so I want to be faithful to establish here how I'm tracking and thinking about this passage. And there will be many who will differ. There's just so much much debate, so much written on it. There's no way you can make everybody happy on this point. But I think it's good for us just to work through it, to realize what the issue is. Then we'll at least have a category as others speak about it in the future. But again, it's also very vital to how we understand the Christian life. And where I come out here is going to have an influence upon the way that I speak about the Christian life. It has an influence. And I think it's right to lay the cards on the table, so to speak. So here we go. Question about this I. As Paul speaks here, it becomes very confusing who he's talking about on a number of levels. Does Paul speak up? And you might say, well, uh, he's talking about I. He's kind of obviously speaking about himself, right? Well, there are some questions about that. Is Paul speaking about himself when he says here in verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin? I am now. There's a shift. To this present tense, I am sold under sin. Is he talking about himself? 
there are those who would say he's actually talking about Adam. You say, I didn't catch that. But go back to verse 9, and you can see how people come to that idea. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Here's one who's alive before the law comes. If you read the word alive as spiritually alive, spiritually righteous in some way, that fits Adam pretty well. He was in a state of innocence without sin until the law came and then he died. And Paul may be speaking here for Adam. The problem is verses 7 and 8, where what Paul is speaking about contextually is not the command, don't eat from the fruit of the tree, but is the command, don't covet, which is the tenth commandment, drawing attention specifically to the Mosaic law. And it's not that that was particularly Adam's issue. There's a way of working that out. Some would take that view. I would reject that view on a number of lines, this being sufficient for now. Secondly, Israel. Paul might speak in corporate identity. And for the Jews, this is something they do all the time. I mean, you've got to figure this out in Israel, which battle they're talking about, because they're always talking about we. We did this and we did that. It might have been four centuries ago that they did it, but they, they did it. Uh, So he may be speaking that way. We, Israel, when we were on Mount Sinai, received the law. What's the problem with that? It works on a lot of levels, but you have this problem again in verse 9. In what way was Israel alive before breaking the law and dead after? On other levels, this doesn't seem to satisfy, and I think we do take then the I to be Paul speaking of himself. It's the most straightforward reading of the word, which doesn't make it right. But I think that there's, there's a stronger support here that he does indeed speak of himself. Notice verse 24 particularly, perhaps the strongest support. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Tom Schreiner said the emotion expressed here would be melodramatic, artificial, and incredibly theatrical if Paul were not describing his own experience. If he's speaking for Israel or he's speaking for Adam... It seems an odd way to put it, oh, wretched man that I am. We don't know. It could be either of these, but likely Paul refers to himself here. Schreiner also nicely captures each of these views, and I think rightly draws them up together when he writes this. I conclude then that the primary reference is to Paul himself in this passage. Paul relays his own experience because it is paradigmatic. It's a paradigm showing the fate of all those under the law. We can also understand why so many scholars see a reference to Adam or Israel, for Paul's experience recapitulates the history of Adam and Israel. All through human history, the encounter with the law has produced death instead of life. So it makes sense. There's reasons why people think it's talking about Adam, talking about Israel, because Paul's experience is, in a sense, their experience. But when Paul says, I, O wretched man that I am, he's speaking about himself and we're going to take it that way. Assuming then that Paul speaks of himself, secondly, we have to ask the question, does Paul speak of himself, A, before his conversion to Christ or B, after his conversion to Christ? If we look at the pre-conversion to Christ on the left line, the middle column here, and the post-conversion on the right column, we see a lot of evidence that arises in both directions. Let's consider first the pre-conversion in verse 14. So this is Paul talking about himself as Saul of Tarsus, the Jewish rabbi. I am of the flesh, 
sold under sin. In light of chapter 6, sin's bondage is broken. How does he talk of himself that way? Verse 23, I am captive to the law of sin. Captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. How does that picture a Christian? So it's probably talking about his pre-Christian days. And then I serve the law of sin. Verse 25, how does that fit one who has been delivered from the bondage of sin? So a good argument is made that this is talking about Paul before he was a Christian. But a very strong argument can be made for Paul speaking about himself in a post-conversion sense. That he speaks here as a believer in Christ. For verse 14, there's a shift to the present tense. It's not just in the present tense, but there's a shift to the present tense. He's been talking past tense. Now he's saying, I now am this. I now know this. And it's a strong argument for the fact that he speaks as a Christian. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right. What unbeliever has that? Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. What unbeliever has that? The law of his mind, verse 23, is pictured as being right with God and tracking in the right way. What unbeliever can claim that? And when really gifted interpreters and writers begin to present their view, you can get drawn back and forth so much you feel like your brain's going to pull apart. They all sound right because we're seeing evidences of what seems to be both here. Here's my conclusions. They're just mine. That's all they are. But in interpreting I as a reference to the pre-conversion Saul of Tarsus or to the post-conversion Apostle Paul, I would stress this, this question is a secondary consideration that does not affect the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is the law is not your salvation. The law reveals sin, it doesn't change your heart. And whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, that's the truth. So we might twist it with the believer to be dealing with sanctification or the unbeliever to be dealing with conversion. The law is not your answer. And that main point, so I, I would encourage us as you think about Romans 7, as you talk to people, many times it comes across as if the most important interpretive point in this passage is, is Paul speaking as a Christian or about his pre-Christian days? Not really the most important point. The most important point is that we are dead to the law, whoever we are. But this would lead me then to a second conclusion. And the reason the arguments on both sides are so strong is because Paul does not intend to speak of himself in Romans 7 as a believer or an unbeliever exclusively. I don't think Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you about my life before Jesus. I don't think he's saying, I'm going to tell you about my life now in Christ. I don't think that's where he's headed, and I think that's why we see this slide. Find the pointer. I can go forward, backwards a little harder. I think that's why we see this slide is because I don't think that Paul is intending to help us see which side he's on. I don't think it ultimately matters. Many would differ on that point, and you can find solid writing on it, but I'm going to plow forward in that way to say that what he says here in some sense applies to an unbeliever and in some sense can apply to a believer, although I would say less so, but more on that in a moment. The struggle against sin that we find in Romans 7 is not a full description of the Christian life. Sin's power has been broken. This is not where we live. 
And yet the passage speaks to all people in our humanity and wretchedness as we stand on our own before God's law. So the Christian is not in bondage to sin or to the law, and yet we live in the already not yet tension of our redemption. That redemption has come, we have been saved, we have the presence of the Spirit, but we're not there yet. Are you there yet? Are you free of sin? Does your life look like sin has nothing on me, never touches me? I am free of that master. There's no influence. If you say that's me, you're deluded. And we'll just talk to the people who live around you and they'll set us straight. That's not the case. Sin is there in the experience of the believer. And so there is application in a sense, but that is not the bent of these chapters 6 through 8, that this is our daily routine. As believers, there's something in this text that resonates with our fallen experience as we await our full redemption and glory, and yet this chapter does not define the experience of the believer. The danger of the post-conversion view is that the believer has a split personality, and you will hear such interpreters talk that way. There's two eyes. I think that's a danger. To think of my Christian life as there's two me's. There's the evil me and the good me, and they're fighting against each other. The fight is with sin, and I don't know that anybody intends to put it that way as two eyes, but they speak of it essentially in those terms. I think there's a danger there. I think there's also a danger of the pre-conversion view to minimize the intense struggle that believers experience in this life, we do experience this tension. So, on to the point. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So whether an unbelieving Jew who wants to obey the law he proudly knows is God's gift to Israel, or a believer struggling with sin, the point is essentially the same. There is a bewildering desire in our hearts to violate God's law. We know this. But in such times, there is at least this ray of hope. My conscience bearing witness that God's law is good. We agree intellectually with what God demands of us in the law. But if we agree that God's law is good, why do we break it? Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And here's where the two eyes does have a point. There is an internal battle. It is sin, indwelling sin, that is the problem, verse 17. This does not mean that we are innately good, Romans 3. This does not mean we have an excuse because sin is a foreign object of some sort that has corrupted us from the outside. So I'm good, it's just sin that's a problem, or it's just this external issue. Sin is like a master who exercises influence over our fleshly, human, material, temporal existence in this world, and the battle's in here. It's inside. I hate to say this, but we've got to deal with reality, and I encourage you with this. Got to say it, you're never going to be free of sin in this life. That battle, that sin indwelling and clinging to our human existence is just going to be there to the end. I can tell you by experience and by counsel, sin happens on deathbeds. There are people in nursing homes that display 
the lust of the flesh to the end of their days. It's just where we are. It's a sad truth, a sad reality, but it's better that we stare it in the face and go, this battle's going to be there for the rest of our lives. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That speaks for the unbeliever. That's where they are, if they have any sense of conscience and that God's law is a good thing. But does that not speak of you from time to time, even as a believer? I know on my own, standing in my own flesh, there's nothing good in me. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. As believers, we don't live there. That's not our environment. That's not our essence. But it is in the flesh our experience from time to time. I could sign Dan Miller at the end of verses 18 and 19 from time to time. And I think you could too. So it's not our bondage because the power to carry out what is right is ours in union with Jesus Christ and through the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. So the lean here is always, in Romans 7, I think the lean is always away from the believer. But caught as we are awaiting the finalization of our redemption, we struggle with sin. We struggle seriously with it. Paul now summarizes, reiterating for emphasis, what he said in verses 16 and 17 and verse 20. Verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So indwelling sin is the problem, not the law. Indwelling sin is the problem, not some force outside of me. The law of God exposes this problem. It does nothing, however, to solve it. And why is that? Because the problem is inside of me and the answer is outside of me. And in that statement, recognize you are hearing a very countercultural, otherworldly truth. Do you grab it? The problem is inside. The answer is outside. We have a culture steeped in turning that around. It's everybody outside of you that's not behaving and not doing the right thing that's messing you up. Go down deep and find your inner angel, the spark of divinity, the goodness that's deep down inside of you. This is what we're hearing over and over again in our culture. Paul is grabbing us. If he could stand here before us, I'm confident I would speak for him on this. He is saying, don't listen to that. The problem is inside of you. It's your sin. It's indwelling sin. That's the problem. We are so bent to turn it all on to other people. It's what they did wrong. It's how they acted that leads now to this sin in my life. And while we may not speak it or articulate it, we really believe that. Because we're so coached to look outside for the problem. I don't do what I want. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, indwelling sin. Now there's a shift at verse 21 that's pretty slight. But you've got to have two points to an outline. So I'll, I'll set it up here. But although it is seen as right, God's law cannot liberate the flesh. 
kind of saying the same thing all the way through the chapter. But there's a bit of an emphasis here in this direction. It's seen as right. The individual recognizes it's right. Paul recognizes it's rightness here in verse 21 and following. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He uses a play on words here with the word law, and he's going to do it again. He's kind of stacking the text with the word law to sharpen the point. I find it to be a law, pun, play on words. I find it to be a law that evil, when I want to do right, evil is there at hand. So law here is not the old covenant law, but this indwelling sin. Verse 22, for I delight in the law, in fact, I delight in the law of God. I see it as right in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Well, we've got to be careful there. Because reading that a certain way, we could be saying that our members, our physical body, that sin somehow is physically resident there as, as this physical entity. It's not where he's aiming at. The flesh here, the members of the body, however, are the instruments of sin. And again, verse 23, he uses law as a play on words that there is this principle that is in me. I see in my members, I see in my physical existence, this law that's waging war against the law of my mind. My mind's saying, this is what God wants, this is what's good, but finding this pull within me to do what is wrong. I'm always being yanked in that direction. It dwells indeed in my very members. It's like it just permeates me. I want to do what's wrong. I'm bent to do what is wrong. And it is as if Paul at this point just loses it with the horror and the disgust of it all when he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this world, from this life, from my existence here? I know what's right. I don't do it. Who will deliver me? I'm wretched. I know it doesn't seem like good news or an encouraging message, verse 24, but it's certainly not a self-esteem building message, is it? How many go to church to feel better about themselves? Now, Paul's a great disappointment. Oh, wretched person that I am. But the truth is that in ourselves, corrupted by sin, apart from the intervention of God, that's who we are. We are wretched sinners. God's law is pure, and if we kept it, it would do only good. It would beautify our lives. It would bless our lives. Our speech would be changed. The thoughts that run through our minds would be changed. They would be pure. We would have a love for others that was glowing and fresh and noticeable to all. There would be a devotion in our lives to God. If we would hear the Word of God and we would do what God desires, there would be beauty in our lives. But there is this in us which just keeps pulling us in the other direction. The corruption. The wretchedness. Now this thinking... Let me just pull off to the side for a moment. This is not going to play well if you equate being loved with being made much of. You're going to want to hear how good you are. You're going to want to hear how your contributions are making a difference. 
you're going to want to hear how people accept you for who you are. What Paul is saying here is, I don't accept myself for who I am. I see myself as wretched. That's my self-identity. That's a tough pill for us to swallow. That's hard to hear in our setting, in our world, because love is defined as being as making much of people. But Paul says it straight here, and he admits what you admit to yourself in the darkest moments. I'm a wretch. I'm a sinful urchin. And I know it. I sense it. God's law is not the problem. I'm the problem. And in anticipation of the work that Christ will do ultimately to deliver us from this wretchedness, Paul is like he can't contain himself here. There's something that just bubbles up to the surface, out of line. He shouldn't have said it, it almost seems, although the Spirit put it here and we're not fighting against it at all. But he says in verse 25 what comes completely from left field, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm a wretch in my sinfulness. Thanks be to God. We know where he's going. He's going into the glories of chapter 8, filling out the glories of chapter 6, that we've been delivered from sin. doesn't mean sinless. And that's why chapter seven's there in part. He wants to make crystal clear that we're not going to come into this sinless existence somewhere, but God has intervened in Christ. There is forgiveness of sin. There is redemption. There is restoration. And all the good that God wants to do in our lives through the law can be done in part now. But it's like Paul's like, oh, push that back down under the carpet. I'm not there yet. And he says in verse 25, I myself then serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. A strong argument here for the post-conversion, Paul, is what he does not say. And he would say this, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If he's talking about pre-Christian Paul, then he should go right to 8.2. Or at least 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But he doesn't quite do that. He adds this thought, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So many would say that's a clinching argument for the post-conversion. Again, I don't follow that. I don't think that's necessary. But rejoicing in Christ, I think what he's doing is coming back to the I serve the law of sin rather than saying I once served the law of sin Strong support there for post-conversion. And yet again, this commends the approach that Paul is simply thinking of life in the body. Life on this side of the consummation. Life before glory. And thinking that way, the passage speaks fully to the condition then of the unbeliever. The passage is always pulling away from the condition of the believer, but it applies where it applies when it applies. What we can't miss in this, and lots of challenging interpretive issues in this chapter. I mean, we've gone now through one of the toughest spots in the Bible. But what we see in the big picture is not difficult, is it? Sin is ugly. We need to recognize that, own it, 
It's like we as the followers of Christ are being pulled apart. And if you are trying to be a religious person apart from Christ, you've not been transformed by his saving grace. You're really being pulled apart because you have no power whatsoever to do what God commands. But if you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you know sin is ugly. Let it be ugly. Don't get used to it. Whatever sin struggle is there, you say, I, you know, it's just better. I'm not going to get over this one in this life. I just need to let this thing go. See it as ugly. Own it as ugly. And be willing to say, in myself, I'm wretched. In Christ, I'm a new creature. Risking over repetitive reminder. Remember that the problem is in you. It's in you. The world points us to look inside for the answers and outside for the problems. The Bible puts it the other way. Are you having problems with people? Somebody in your life? Probably talking to 100% here, right? Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's in the family. Maybe it's a work situation. It could be in the church. Who are you struggling with? Where's that problem? How do you identify it? What is it that you wish would go away? I encourage myself before you and I encourage you, start by looking inside. Look for the sin in you. You don't understand what this person's doing to me. You don't understand how... Look inside. Start there and know that indwelling sin is pulling you apart. And if you're facing trouble with somebody, you're facing a difficulty with them, you've got to start there. We think we're 2020 on everybody else's sin. We're not, but we trick ourselves to believe it. We're not near 2020 on our own. Look inside. Start there. Know to identify the sin in my own heart is where I must begin. And then know that our identity is in Christ, and that is key. United with His death and resurrection. Sin's power broken, chapter 6, chapter 7, the way of the law superseded by the new age of the Spirit, by changed hearts and our, in the presence of the Spirit within us. We know this is the answer, not to stay lodged in, O wretched man that I am, but to always look to Christ and my union with His death and resurrection. The answer is not, watch me be a better person than I was before. The answer is, see what Jesus has done. See how He has rescued me. And to know that always we are living in that gospel message of redemption. And on that point then, let me make one more, and that is that our fight... Can I make two more? I miscounted. Really fast though. Our fight against sin as Christ's child is where it's at. We've got to fight it. Because I would have to miss this if I didn't say it. And that, just a... Ah, I didn't get on. Put it on at least at 10.30. I can't believe it's not on there. John Owen said this. Sanctification, he's talking about that, he says, cannot be done without the daily mortifying of sin. Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness and against every degree we grow. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. He who does not kill sin in this way takes no steps toward his journey's end. He who finds not opposition from it and who sets not himself in every particular to its mortification is at peace with it, not dying to it. Never be at peace with sin, ever. Fight it. 
Go after it. And that leads then to this last point. And that is the glorious truth that our redemption in eternity is approaching. There it is. What do you know? In this life, in the battle with sin, we must always pursue in hope of eternity. It makes a world of difference. No pun intended. To see not this life only, the wretchedness of sin and its indwelling, but to see the next. I can't hardly speak of it. To know that glorious day when sin is gone. That's coming, Christian. It's coming. That hope helps me fight it now. It's going to be gone All those stupid thoughts that I have, all those lustful thoughts that I have, all of those words that are spoken and attitudes that are nurtured, that are wicked and small, all of the selfishness, all of the lack of love, gone. And that work has already been accomplished. Christ did it. It's over. It's just time. And when we enter into that glorious day with glorified bodies, our minds not only in agreement with God's will, but our uncluttered existence, untempted by sin. That day is coming. Live in its light. Go after that light as you fight sin, putting to death the sins of our lusts, walking over their dead bellies as we cut them down one by one until that glorious day when it's all over. And all that we can begin to envision of purity and holiness and goodness and godliness is ours forever, never to be taken away. That day's coming. You're not there yet, and I'm not there yet, but let's keep making our way like pilgrim to that final end.